1: brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, We'll turn to health care and the brewing controversy over a new drug for treating Alzheimer's disease that was recently approved by the FDA. Is it effective? Will it be covered by Medicare? And how much will it cost? We'll ask Josh Gordon, director of health policy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Then, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I We'll look back at what Congress has done so far on budget-related activities and what's coming up next. We got a little bit of a a week of a pause here uh, in between, so there's a lot to cover there. But before we get back to the budget, we'll talk to Josh Gordon about the the new um, uh, drug for treating Alzheimer's disease. Josh is the director of health policy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, where he leads the research into the effect of federal policies on health and the healthcare system. Prior to joining the committee, uh, Josh was a policy communications consultant and senior healthcare policy fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute. Before that, he spent eighteen years at a, a, as policy director at a place called uh, the Concord Coalition. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, Josh was also a research director for the Sundance Film Festival documentary IOUSA in 2008. A great movie, by the way, with a compelling cast. (laughs) Look it up online. And uh, he served as an adjunct adjunct professor uh, at the George Washington University Graduate School of Political Management. We're gonna uh, talk to Josh uh, about this uh, new Alzheimer's drug and how it may affect Medicare and uh, and the healthcare system in general. uh, We'll get into all of that right after these short messages. Josh, welcome back to Facing the Future.
2: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, uh, whenever you're on, we end up talking about healthcare policy, and uh, that's not an accident, of course. Uh, that's your specialty. And the reason I wanted to have you on for uh, this show is that there's been a really interesting development uh, in in healthcare, and, and it affects, it will affect uh, Medicare, and that's the Approval by the FDA of uh, of a new drug to to treat uh, Alzheimer's. Um, just before we get into the the details of um, how that might, uh, you know, what what the cost would be, what the access is, um, let's just first, uh, what what is the drug uh, and uh, how do you pronounce it and what is it supposed to do? Uh,
2: the drug is adjuhelm and it is supposed to uh, halt the decline of, uh, Alzheimer's patients with early stage Alzheimer's. And it does this by specifically targeting, um, the plaques in the brain that some researchers think are, uh, related to Alzheimer's disease. And, um, other than that, kind of everything else about the drug is in question. (laughs) And that's what makes it so interesting. Um, it really has uh, I mean, normally when a drug is approved, uh, you don't hear about it much. And this has uh, has been approved and has been in the news pretty much every day since. Uh, and it really is a fascinating um test for our uh, current drug system in the united states
1: and I, I I think there's been some question about who it's recommended for. I mean, if you were to read the label or go to a doctor's office, uh, who is it? Recommended for?
2: Yeah, and and this actually changed a few times uh, since the drug was approved. Uh, Originally, the drug company and the FDA uh, were going to do what's called kind of a more narrow label, uh, where they were only going to recommend it for very specific Alzheimer's patients, those um, that are in the early stages of disease, as defined by certain tests that you would take and brain scans to determine if you were um, a good. Um, candidate for improvement uh, on this drug. Uh, But then uh, with the FDA approval, uh, the drug label um, somehow was uh, all of a sudden open to anyone with Alzheimer's, a very broad label as they say. Um, And there was such an outcry uh, about this that it seems like the FDA and the drug company worked to again, more narrowly target uh, the label, which just means that doctors seeing their patients will, again, be looking for those that that meet this um, specific criteria um, to try the drug. Um,
1: You mentioned uh, that there's some question, I guess, about its effectiveness. There was some controversy about its approval. Um, Could you get into that background uh, a little bit?
2: Yeah. uh, Originally, the um, drug company conducted two um, trials, uh, and they actually halted those trials a, a few years ago uh, because they were not seeing um, much success, certainly no difference in the ultimate well-being of the Alzheimer's patients and uh, a fair amount of side effects. Uh, so they they stopped testing the drug. And then somehow uh, through um, the drug company working with the FDA over the years since the drug trials stopped, they re-evaluated the data from those trials. They found something that that made them rethink whether the drug was effective, and then proceeded with this um, recent application and then approval uh, for the drug. So the people looking back at this process are are, um, looking with scrutiny at those trials and what data the FDA possibly had to make them rethink it. And not a lot of people are persuaded that the initial decision for the drug company was the wrong one. I I think uh, certainly the um, advisory panel that the FDA had made up of medical experts voted unanimously to not approve the drug because they weren't persuaded that those trials showed some um, positive impact from the drug. Certainly not one that um, exceeded uh, the risk of side effects um, yet the drug was still approved, and that's part of the controversy.
1: Yeah, I guess we're all more familiar with uh, approval process for the various COVID vaccines, and there you just had like overwhelming medical evidence and overwhelming support from the advisory uh, panel and FDA approval, and and it's on the market. Uh, it, it quite surprised me to look at the uh, the the holes in the uh, in the effectiveness uh, and and then to see that the FDA went against the um, uh, the advisory panel is that uh, maybe this is a little bit speculative on everybody's part but I mean is that because there there really have been no drugs for to treat Alzheimer's and there's a there's quite a demand for something so maybe a desire to get something on the market?
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, there's an estimated five million Medicare aid patients um, in in the uh, country that have Alzheimer's. It's probably, the number is probably a little bit even higher than that. Um, And there hasn't been a drug approved and I I believe over two decades uh, to help treat the disease. And certainly there's no known cure. Um, And so yes, patients, families, uh, and the medical system are desperate for something Um, that can um, help improve um, certainly the patients and also the lives of those around the patients. Um, And uh, unfortunately, sometimes science doesn't work as quickly as we hope. And and I do think that this might be a situation where uh, the hope kind of outweighed the science and led to this really weird confluence of events uh, where the drug was approved. Um, And it's also important to know that even the um, improvement that the drug company and the FDA thought they saw was only in one of the two trials. Everyone acknowledges that one of the trials showed no improvement. And the other improvement was kind of a 20% improvement in these very specific um, early um, progression of the disease uh, people. And even that 22% isn't any kind of long-term cure of the disease, it was just kind of um, a lessening in the deterioration over uh, some amount of time. Um, I, I think if this was a question of whether this drug was actually um, solving the problem or curing the disease, um, then all of the other questions that I'm sure we'll talk about about price uh, and access uh, would not nearly be um, as, as this loud, uh, really. But, but the problem is both that um scientists uh and uh, people have observed the process are uncertain whether this drug even works uh, and then you have the additional problem of how expensive it is and um and, and all of the things that follow from that
1: yeah well uh let's let's get into that um uh, people do cost benefit analysis and uh so we've been talking about the the benefits the the costs now um uh is an important factor what is the uh estimated cost of of the drug uh
2: i mean the the estimate is that the drug will cost about fifty six thousand dollars a year uh for treatment of the drug and these drugs are drugs that are um given by physicians in their offices so it falls under medicare part b um and um if you look at that fifty six thousand price even if it was just 56,000, um, estimates are that that would cost Medicare between 6 and $30 billion a year um, just for this one drug. And for perspective, um, all drugs in Medicare Part B right now cost about $37 billion uh, to the Medicare program. So this is kind of almost doubling that. Um, and that $29 billion estimate assumes only 500000 of the 5 million patients estimated to have Alzheimer's would be taking the drug. Um, so uh, it, it is- That just-
1: sounds like kind of a low estimate. Yeah, I mean, I, you'd think that uh, people would be coming out of the woodwork to, to take it.
2: Yes, it, it's a staggering uh, amount of money. Right now, about 2 million people take Alzheimer's drugs that are older and uh, not, not very effective. So uh, I think the drug company thinks that's closer to the amount of people that might be taking this drug, which would just, um, you know, it almost dwarf all other drug spending in Medicare Part B just for this one drug that again, we're not sure uh, it even works uh, and um, also has side effects and we haven't even talked about that. Uh, And there's one other issue of cost is that um, the people that are gonna get this drug in addition to paying for the drug are also gonna have to take a lot of um, ancillary tests Uh, one to make sure they're they're in a good category to take the drug and then others to monitor for side effects and improvement. And those tests themselves are very expensive uh, for Medicare. And then there's one other part, uh, which is the $56,000 a year estimate um, is for a specific weight of a patient. And it turns out that um, uh, most Medicare patients actually weigh more than this $56,000 estimate. So even uh, that is probably undercutting a little bit the annual cost uh, for the drug.
1: Is, uh, has, has Medicare decided how it will cover? I mean, whether it will cover or under what circumstances?
2: Uh, it has not. And um, that is another really interesting Uh, piece uh, of this um, policy issue that Medicare normally uh, covers um, anything approved by the FDA and at whatever price the drug manufacturer sets. Um, Medicare does have the ability to um, determine that a drug is not um, necessary uh, for its population, but this is a very politically fraught decision that they shy away from. But they do have a process by which they can make a national coverage determination, and they can set conditions upon which they agree to pay for this drug for a subset of Medicare beneficiaries. And it does seem like right now they're looking into how to put conditions uh, on this drug so that it wouldn't immediately be widely available to the entire uh, Medicare population. There would be um, It would be limited to certain patients. It might um, force the drug manufacturer to collect data on those patients um, and and effect, an additional test of whether the drug actually works um, in order uh, for Medicare to pay for the drug. Um, So that all um, is still up in the air. I should note that just this week, uh, the Veterans Administration announced that they would not be um, covering the drug uh, for those that see doctors in the VA right now because of all these questions about um, effectiveness. And a lot of private insurers right now are also refusing uh, to pay for the drug uh, because of those similar questions.
1: So the drug is actually on the market right now, but uh, not being widely used? Is...
2: Yeah, that that that's correct. What
1: about, um, you know, sort of ancillary effects? I mean, it, it, could this have a... Um an effect on Medicare premiums, even for people that are not taking the drug, uh, or on private insurance plans?
2: Uh, yeah, in Medicare, as Medicare expenditures rise, uh, so do Medicare premiums. Um, Medicare pays for uh, whatever it pays for, and then taxpayers cover 75% of those costs, and beneficiaries in the form of premiums cover the un- other 25%. So this would increase premiums for all Medicare beneficiaries um, and, uh, and certainly um, taxpayers are on the hook as well. Um, and the same thing happens in the private insurance market as um, the cost to treat patients go up in private health insurance, so do premiums go up uh, to cover that.
1: And presumably would, would this affect out of pocket costs, do you think?
2: Yeah, that's that's another thing I think a lot of people don't realize about Medicare Part B drugs is that Medicare Part B drugs are subject to a 20% cost sharing for beneficiaries. Now, a lot of Medicare beneficiaries have supplemental coverage that covers that cost sharing and kind of um, evens and spreads out the risk of that cost sharing. But about 6 million Medicare beneficiaries still pay that 20% cost sharing. And uh, that's about $11,000 a year um, for patients um, taking this drug, which, which is a huge amount of money among a population that tends to have fixed income and certainly uh, doesn't have uh, the kind of income that could um, afford uh, $11,000 a year for this drug of uncertain benefit.
1: And Josh, we're talking about the, the cost of Medicare. I mean, one of the things that you've been working on at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget is, um, you know, Policy options that would help make the system more efficient, so you would get uh, increased uh, quality, per, perhaps, but in a more efficient way, and help save money. Because, as we all know, healthcare is probably the biggest policy factor in in driving long-term uh, federal budget spending. So, um, you know, how does this compare when you when you're trying to push that uh, difficult rock up the hill, and and suddenly there's this enormous uh, new cost potentially. To Medicare?
2: Yeah, Bob, I think that is why um, this has been on my mind since the day uh, the drug was approved. Uh, Because, um, as you know, uh, policy experts work all the time at um, giving policymakers uh, options to reduce healthcare costs. And it's a very difficult road. uh, And even really small changes in policy to save very small amounts of money are incredibly difficult um, in, in the current political environment. Uh, and, and so the idea that all of that work to save you know, um, $50 billion over 10 years, or we have a couple of policy options, one saves $130 billion over 10 years, and it's like a no-brainer, and still we can't get Congress to do it. And then to see uh, one drug come on the market, that would kind of Eliminate all of those savings options um, just to get us back to where we were, which, as you know, is an unsustainable path anyway for Medicare. Uh, it is um, quite, uh, I guess, frustrating and and sad. Um, which really wouldn't be the case if 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 this drug actually cured Alzheimer's. That could save a lot of money downstream for the healthcare system and certainly save uh, patients and their families a lot of grief. Uh, but that's not what this drug is, and. And so that's what makes it um, both interesting but also frustrating.
1: Yeah, well, this is a this is a subject that uh, we're going to be following closely because it it will have uh, quite an impact, and of course, this is a very very important uh, healthcare story as well. Uh, but that's all the time we have uh, for this particular segment. So, Josh, thanks for. Joining us on Facing the Future, I'll be right back with uh, Steve Robinson and Tori Gorman to catch us up today on other budget news uh, developments in Washington, right after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, for this segment, I'm joined by... Concord Coalition uh, Policy Director, Tori Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist, Steve Robinson. So we're going to have a little bit of a Concord Coalition uh, uh, in-house roundtable here on where we are with budget developments. Uh, this, is a, this is a place to sort of take a pause and ask what just happened on Capitol Hill because we had a lot of activity on the, uh, on the budget and uh, there are kind of three big things in play. They're out this week, but the House is going to come back next week and start working on one of those big parts, at, at least one of them, the budget resolution. So Tori, I'm going to um, ask you to sort of set things up here in this, in this pause week. Uh, what have we done and what are they going to do when they get back?
3: Sure, sure so august is typically a month when members of the house and the senate uh, take a pause in their work in washington dc and head back to their districts to meet with constituents and and stakeholders in public policy uh, before the senate got out of town uh, they pushed through two important measures the first being the bipartisan infrastructure legislation um, that has been sent to the house where it awaits attention And the second piece of legislation was the budget resolution for fiscal year 2022, the upcoming fiscal year. Um, And unlike the infrastructure bill that was passed on a party line basis, just all all Democrats voting, Senate Democrats uh, voting for the 2022 budget resolution. Now, and the reason why the budget resolution is important is because it kicks off a, a special process called reconciliation. That will allow Democrats in the House and Senate to push through President Biden's uh, remaining policy agenda uh, regarding uh, uh, human infrastructure, if you will, the $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation bill dealing with investment in people. Um, So, those two pieces of legislation got through the Senate before the Senate adjourned for, for August. And those two pieces of legislation are now awaiting attention in the House. The House had gone home for their August district work period, but uh, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer called them back and the House will come back to Washington next week uh, on Monday and start the process of getting those two, at least the budget resolution, getting the budget resolution across the the House floor. I think the question there is, uh, will they pass the first, do they have enough votes to pass a budget resolution right now there's a little squabble between inner inner party squabble between the progressives and the the moderates in the House Democratic Party. But will they also pass what the Senate gave them, or will the House amend the budget resolution and then send it back to the Senate. So those are sort of the questions that that are outstanding right now. And of course, once the House and the Senate pass an identical budget resolution then the two chambers are often running on the reconciliation bill that will actually put legislative text language uh behind the the policy proposals that that president biden put in his policy agenda
1: yeah so they um not much of a summer vacation for them um they'll be coming back you know you mentioned uh some of the the tension in the house it it seems um you know i mean that the the tough thing for speaker pelosi right now is that she's got a very narrow majority and they're just you know the the she's got moderates saying we're not going to pass the budget resolution until we pass the infrastructure bill and you got other people saying we're not going to pass the infrastructure bill until we pass the budget resolution she seems to be trying to to do two things at once and i don't want to get overly technical here but She's trying to write a rule, as I understand it, where they could, in effect, uh, have set the rules of debate for both things at once, and maybe that might be a way to compromise. Uh, do you recall a situation like that, or does that seem like a feasible solution to you?
3: Well, I, I think what she's trying to do is take a page from prior budget resolution debates. You know, Long ago, the House had a rule called the Gephardt Rule, which said when the House passed a budget resolution, it would also spin off legislation that would increase the debt limit and then send it to the Senate to deal with so that the House didn't expressly have to vote on an increase in the debt limit so it was a rule that spun off two pieces of legislation, a budget resolution and an increase in the debt limit. So I think Nancy Pelosi is trying to take a page from that playbook and use that to assuage uh, the moderates who would prefer to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill first before Waiting for the, the the reconciliation bill to pass, which is that's months away, right? I mean, if 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 you know the House Democrats are going to wait for the reconciliation bill to get through the Senate uh, before passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill, that could be a November or December exercise. And as you can imagine, many moderate Democrats who are up for reelection in 2022, they want to get that highway money. In the hands of the state and local governments right away so that money is is being spent and the the economic and job implications the benefits afforded to that that spending are being felt before the November elections run around so they they have a vested interest in getting that money out and into the economy and into their communities sooner rather than later. And there's a concern, and I think it's, it's appropriate, that, that if they wait until November or December to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill because progressives are demanding that the, the, the reconciliation bill come first, um, then that, that's a problem for those, those moderates that are seeking reelection. And let's be honest, it's those moderates that give Nancy Pelosi her majority in the House. It's those moderates that give Schumer his majority in the Senate.
1: So um, one thing uh, that is kind of up in the air we don't really know about is uh, the Social Security and Medicare trustees report. Uh, Not that that is a part of the budget resolution, but it is something that budget watchers look at very closely because it has to do with the fiscal uh, health of the two biggest benefit programs in the federal budget, Social Security and Medicare. Um, Steve, uh, as, a, as a former employee of the Social Security Administration, I, I know you don't have any inside information on when they're coming out. but Aren't we a little bit late with these reports?
0: Yeah, we're, we're more than a little bit late. I mean, uh, but by law, uh, there is a requirement to submit the Medicare and Social Security trustees reports to Congress by, I believe, April 15th. Of course, there's no penalty attached to the law. So if they miss the deadline, there's really no consequence, but you know, by, by law, by tradition, the trustees have traditionally submitted the report, you know, sometime early spring. They've even been early a time or two in the past. Uh, they've also been late, uh, but I believe that that this year they may be approaching a record of, uh, on on the lateness. Um, I haven't actually gone back to check all of the previous dates, but uh, I do think that they're they're behind. Part of it, obviously, is is due to changes in the administration. I mean, anytime you The the trustees report is a very long process. Um, Every year there's what's called the trustees working group which is the the treasury department, the labor department, HHS and social security. And they all get together at the staff level and and prepare the report for the upcoming year. And so the report that was prepared for this year was done by the working group under the, the previous Trump administration. And so anytime you have a change in administration, as we did this year, sometimes there can be a delay simply because the the new administration is waiting to get a Secretary of Treasury and Labor and, and HHS in place. Now, of course, those secretaries now have been in place for a while, uh, but we've still not seen the, the trustees report. So, you know, it's it's a little curious to me, because obviously, actually, I was at Social Security up until it was recently as this past March. Uh, no, I'm sorry. April, uh, no, March. Uh, so as of March, the report was pretty close to being done. It was just a matter of getting people to sign off. And of course, when you have a change in administration, you got to wait for the new people to sign off. And for some reason, that hasn't happened yet. And so it's, it's a bit of a mystery. It,
1: well, the, the, the Trump administration, Social Security Administrator, was fired. Correct. Well, so, I mean, that's
0: sure. That's another complication. Is the the Social Security Administration, in theory, uh, has an, an independent agency status, and the commissioner of Social Security is appointed to a, to a six year term, uh, and he was in theory going to serve out another four years. Uh, he was appointed under under President Trump, and the Biden administration, uh, as a result of a couple of Supreme Court decisions regarding whether or not independent agencies are truly independent or whether in fact they answer to the administration. And the, the, the court's leaning was that despite what the law said about social security being an independent agency, uh, the head of the agency serves at the pleasure of the president and he basically showed the, the former sec, the former Social security commissioner Andrew Saul, he basically showed him the door. And so they had a change at the top of, of the agency which obviously could further, Delay things, but that that transition has occurred now, and we still are still waiting on the trustees report. So,
1: you're listening to Facing the Future. Uh, This is Bob Bixby. I'm talking to Tory Gorman, the policy director of the Concord Coalition, and Steve Robinson, the chief economist of the Concord Coalition, and we're trying to just catch up uh, as Congress is is on break uh, in their district work period, as they like to say. Uh, on what budget uh, events have taken place and what the budget events are coming up. And uh, before I get back to Tori on the on the b- budget stuff, Steve, just to um, follow up on the trustees report, when it does come out, I mean, what, what are the things that uh, people generally look for as the most important? Or uh, maybe I should say, what do you look for as the, the things that are well, most important?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, th- there's, sort of the top line that everybody looks for every year. And that of course is the trustees uh, estimate of when the trust funds will be exhausted. Uh, by law, uh, Medicare Part A uh, and social security and both retirement and disability, they're essentially three major trust funds. And those are in theory funded partially by payroll taxes and partially by prior year surpluses that earn in interest and that interest compounds and builds the trust fund balance over time. And for the past, oh, I don't know, 30 years or so, they've been predicting that those trust funds will become exhausted sometime around the year 2030 to 2040. And those predictions, actually, that's for, for Social Security, Medicare is a little sooner. And so it's always sort of a big, you know, the, the, the news headline and the news focus is on when are the trustees uh, going to say that if the, the funds will be exhausted and benefits will no longer be paid in full and on time. And so everybody looks for those those trust fund exhaustion dates. But the the things that that also matter very much are of course the the, the primary assumptions of how fast wages are expected to grow, what's the the labor force gonna look like, what are life expectancies doing, uh, what are fertility rates doing. Uh, what is the excess medical cost growth, what does that look like? So there are some sort of underlying uh, metrics that people look at that tell you what the programs are going to look like in the future. Uh, And those, in my view, are are a little more important than the trust fund exhaustion date, because obviously Congress can and, and has in the past you know, just played accounting games and, and can push the trust fund date. In fact, just a few years ago, back in 2015, the disability trust fund was about to go you know, to, to exhaust. And Congress simply said, well, we're going to reallocate part of the payroll tax from the, the retirement program and put the money over in the disability program. And so, you know, they were able to delay uh, or postpone the exhaustion of the DI fund by simply reallocating money between the retirement fund and the disability fund. They've done the same thing back in 1983. They borrowed from the HI fund to bail out both of the other retirement and disability funds. So, you know, they can even use general revenue, which is what they've done with the highway trust funds in the past. When the trust highway trust funds are, you know, going to exhaust and not pay for uh, planned highway spending, they stick general revenue uh, into the trust fund. So, you know, the trust fund is an important metric, but Congress has historically shown an ability to get around sort of the 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 the, the um, consequences of the trust fund exhaustion which of course would be people's benefits would be delayed or, or not paid in, in full and so you know they can paper over that but but the long run demographics and economics are what really drive the program and those are some of the yeah and i that i at. i
1: always like to look at the uh the cash flows also since that's the uh, important way that it affects the budget right. uh if they're borrowing money elsewhere to to satisfy those trust fund bonds. One arm of the government is paying the other uh, arm of the government and the Treasury needs to come up with the cash to pay off the social security bonds and that has an effect on the budget but we can get into that more in depth at another uh, <laughs> another, another occasion. Uh, Tori, back to the, uh, the, the, the budget I mean this, um, the reconciliation bill let, let's assume that uh, speaker Pelosi figures out a way to get uh, uh, her uh, caucus behind some version of the budget resolution and it, and it passes, when they turn their attention to the reconciliation bill, and the whole point of the budget resolution is to produce this reconciliation bill. Um, there's there are, uh, 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 there are limits to what they can do with it. And um, how much of it is going to be, well, I know you can't say this definitively, but <laughs> what, what's the range or how much could be deficit financed? And um, are they going to try to pay for the whole thing?
3: Sure. So that's sort of where the budget resolution comes in. So the, the budget is sort of a, a top line organizing uh, bl- budget blueprint that sends Instructions out to the different authorizing committees and says, "Hey, Mr. Chairman, please report out changes in in policies, uh, changes in legislation under your control, under your purview that uh, you know increase the deficit no more than blank insert blank." And we know that the Democrats are planning uh, a three and a half trillion dollar package whether that's a mix of spending increases or tax cuts or the extension of of existing uh, tax cuts, for example, the the child tax credit and things like that. Um, So they're planning $3.5 trillion worth of increased spending and tax cuts, but the instructions to committees that were in the budget resolution that they have to follow in drafting this reconciliation bill say that in toto, when you add up all of the instructions to the various committees, that they can only increase the deficit by about half that much, $1.7, $1.75 trillion. So um, whatever they put together, whether they spend $3.5 trillion, whether they spend $2 trillion, whatever it is, at the end of the day, when they add up all the puts and takes in their reconciliation bill, it cannot increase the deficit by more than $1.75 trillion over 10 years, so within the, the budget window. Now, do they have to spend $3.5 trillion and offset half of it? Uh, no, they could spend $1.75 trillion, because maybe that's all that they could come to agreement with, and offset none of it. We know, for example, that some of the offsets that President Biden has proposed in his budget are contentious. Things like raising the corporate income tax, um, raising the income tax on high net worth individuals, raising the tax on capital gains, etc. So if if Democrats in the House and the Senate, moderates and progressives, can't agree on those offsets and they have a requirement that they can't increase the deficit by more than $1.75 trillion, then that means something has to give. And that means Perhaps the tax cuts or the spending programs that they want to increase, they can't increase as much. So it 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 the, the instruction that the the top line instruction, the $1.75 trillion, is sort of a, a stake in the ground, but there is a lot of leeway on both sides of that number. They can spend a whole bunch and raise a whole bunch of, of revenue. They could spend not as much and raise not as much revenue. Or they could put together a smaller bill 1.75 trillion dollars that has no offsets whatsoever
1: well that'll keep us all in suspense um
3: that you know i uh,
1: do you think that that 1.7 trillion dollar number i may be cynical here but that's about the size of the republican tax cut from 2017 as scored by the congressional budget resolution do you think (laughs) that there was any thought behind the scenes given to the fact that if if the democrats were going to do something either a 1.7 trillion dollar package that was not offset at all or a 3.5 trillion dollar uh package that was only offset by half of that one in in either event leaving a 1.75 trillion dollar hole uh, that the Democrats could, and the Republicans are going to complain about that as a big deal deficit increase. The Democrats could say, well, that's what you did in 2017 by reconciliation. Do you Mm -hmm. think there was any thought given to that?
3: Short answer? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I don't even need to expand on that. I mean, absolutely. I think that's absolutely what, what the, the plan was. Um, It just inoculates them from the the criticism that they're increasing the the deficit. They can totally point to the Republicans and say, you did the same thing in 2017.
1: I think that as we uh, think about the um, complaints about the deficit and and raising the debt limit and and all like that, it is um, difficult. I mean, one one of the problems for the Republicans is that these were not things that they worried about in 2017. And uh, um, so it politically makes it difficult to come back and, and make those arguments now. But that is all we have time for in this brief update. I'm sure we'll be talking more about this As the uh, summer winds down and the fall progresses, this is Facing the Future. I've been talking with Tory Gorman and uh, Steve Robinson about uh, where things are headed on the federal budget. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.